Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back. We are jumping into the world of private equity today. I've got Adam Coffee back on the show. If you're not familiar with Adam, I interviewed him a couple years ago. He is the author of the Private Equity Playbook, the Exit Strategy Playbook, and his most recent book, Empire Builder, The Road to a Billion. Adam has bought 58 companies throughout his career as a CEO, and he's been backed by nine private equity sponsors. He's truly on a mission to help entrepreneurs understand the world of private equity and how to play the private equity game. We're going to be talking about the private equity pyramid and how these PE firms can scale a company. And what I love is Adam takes the stages of companies from zero to a million, a million to 10 million, all the way up to a billion and how the scaling of a company gets more complicated and how it is different, like the things we talked about with Joel Trammell back on the show months ago and how the complexities of a business suck up cash differently and how the owner might have different wants as the company scales. So we talk about this journey and how the private equity strategy can be applied and how it impacts the job and role of the owner differently the asset, the valuations, and the ability to scale. I know you're going to love this episode. And we talk a lot about financials. You hear me constantly talking about, hey, we need to be able to see the numbers. And if you're interested in a complimentary financial assessment from our Kona and our team, where we plug in our financial dashboard and analyze your numbers, all you have to do is schedule a discovery call with me and my team where I want to know a little bit about you, the business, and where you're going. And if you're interested and you qualify, I will book a call for my team where we'll plug in the dashboard and analyze your numbers, complimentary, all in the spirit of trying to get to know each other and determine whether we should work together in the future. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And without further ado, here's my interview with Adam Coffey. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Adam, how are you, man? I'm good, Ryan. It's good to be back. You know, of all the podcasts I've done, and I think I've done like 150 or something like that. Whoa. I uh, I have to say the first time you and I got together was one of my favorite. And whenever someone someone wants to hear a podcast, I send them to yours first because <laughs> just it, it, you were so high energy, and it was like you and I had a had a similar kind of energy level, and it, it just really worked magically. So I, that's awesome. Good to be back. Good to be I actually back. I have to say that the comments on our YouTube uh, episode are probably the only YouTube comments I actually comment on because it's a bunch of people rallying around the topic. And I got to ask, do I? There's no way I have more energy than Tommy Mello. There's zero chance. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I, I don't. It, it, so Tommy, you know, an, another friend. I, I I don't know. You know, I don't know if he lives on an IV of Red Bull or, <laughs> just, you know, but he's got a ton of he's got a ton of energy too. I I, I got to give you that. And uh, yes, yes. I, I, I when he was on the show last, I was like, I I don't know if I just I just t- tossed him up a couple couple of questions and he just went with it. Yeah. <laughs> But you're on the show again because you pumped out another book since we talked last. And let's say, I know we, we covered a lot of ground in the last episode. So we, you know, 
we, we got that in the archives through people. I just wanted to know, let's start with like, why, why another book? What was your intention with the book and yeah, from the audience? So, so the, the, this book is called Empire Builder, the, the, the Road to a Billion. And so if you remember the private equity playbook, so the other ones are up there. Mm-hmm. The private equity playbook was my first book, and, but it was subject matter oriented towards private equity. And I felt like there was this whole generation of entrepreneurs who who just really don't understand private equity. And that hasn't changed, completely hasn't changed. You know, I still give this same 10 question, multiple choice quiz to people. And, uh, you know, I do a seminar or whatever, and I've got very smart people, some people with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, and 90 plus percent of the room fails miserably. And usually the high... high? Usually the high score is about is about six out of ten. It's a five, you know, ten questions, five choices each one, um, and, and so you know, it, it's that book still sells. This morning I woke up, it was number one. You know, it, it has literally for for four years since it was released, continued to just be a it has a cult classic. Anytime someone wants to understand private equity, they go to that. The exit strategies, you know, playbook, same thing. It was these are bookends. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the exit strategy playbook. Also, subject matter oriented towards just you got a business, you built it, it's time to exit. Who's the universe of buyers? How do I get the best deal? You know, and, and how do I navigate that when it's my first time and I've never done it before? What makes Empire Builder fun um, was so while, while those two are subject books, this is the journey. So, so this mm. one is I literally lay out the roadmap on how to go from zero to 100,000. 100,000 to a million, a million to 10 million, 10 to 100, 100 to a billion. And I lay out all the stages of growth, what the tools are that you need to understand in order to go from, you know, from one of these swim lanes to another. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I also, you know, the focus areas are, are different and, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it, it came out of, uh, my first two-day seminar that I taught, which was called Empire Builder. And so I had a, a 350-page PowerPoint deck. And I I went into this seminar knowing that this was going to become a book. And ah, that's it. how most of my books start is like a college lecture or mm-hmm. something that I've been working on, I've been perfecting and teaching. And so I, I went into this seminar knowing that the people in the room didn't know that, that this was going to become a book. So I, I taught the seminar in February, literally March 1st. I sat down and I started, you know, started writing and business books have a certain format to them. You know, the, the, the publishing world would love 40,000 words, target, uh, 12, <laughs> you know, 12 chapters, four sections, three sections each and intro <laughs> and exit. It's like, there's a very prescriptive formula because if you get too many pages, you know, nobody can make any money. The ADHD entrepreneur is not going to read it, right? <laughs> it, it, it costs a lot if you got a thousand page textbook that you can only sell for $29 instead of 3000 you know. So it, it's a very prescriptive formula. But but what, what made this one fun was I, uh, I, I, I really kind of busted into, first of all, I did a lot of research. So you know, statistics are, are really scary in uh, in business. And so I'm, I'm using American statistics because they're published on the government websites and easy to get. But there's 33 million small businesses in America today. And of those 33 million, only 7% ever get to a million dollars of revenue. Mm-hmm. And, and of those, only 4% of the 7% ever get to 10 million. And I'm a guy who's built hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like, you know, I, I'm like, why is it so hard 
mm-hmm. to succeed. And and then there's you know the other statistics, which is like you know in the first five years, more than than fifty percent of all businesses that are started fail. And I'm like, why can't people get this right? So I, I did digging, you know, and I I, I bought fifty eight companies over the years, uh, s- smaller businesses that I put together to build my bigger empires. And so as I was doing my research, I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I, I, I think I understand. And I, so I started laying it out for people. And it's like, you know, when people are starting out, um, you know, I, what I find is before you get, you worry about building a, a one million or ten million or a hundred million dollar business, before you build something big, you got to build something that works small. Mm-hmm. The first hundred grand, the first million, just key to success. And it's all about unit level economics. So I, I, I came up with. Uh, uh, a, I call it the law of one of, of 30, 20, 10, you know, there's the 30, 20, 10 rule. Um, and I, I, I came up with a methodology on how a person can create a prescriptive formula to ensure their success going to a million. How can you be that perfect? How can you be one of the 7% that gets to a, a million? Mm-hmm. I'll show you how to build a perfect business focused on unit level economics, both focused on producing at least 30% gross margin, you know, gross profit, um, less than twenty percent SGNA, minimum ten percent net profit, you know, or higher. Mm-hmm. And I use, I build this mythical landscape maintenance business because people can wrap their head around what are my unit level economics. It's one truck, it's mm-hmm. a two person crew, a mower, a weed whacker, a blower, a rake, you know, a shovel. And it's like we build this mathematical formula: how much revenue can this crew produce? What are the costs, operating costs for the truck, and you know, for mm-hmm. the weed whacker and the blower and the mower, all that stuff. And so I, I, I just, I guide people from startup through defining your unit level economics. You know, even before that, I focus on, you know, we, in, in today's world, it's so volatile from an, an economic perspective. It's like, we have to start by focusing on needs, not one. Well, well, and I like, and I, I like, so when I was going through your book and I, I think there's a couple other concepts I want to weave in here too, because I, I'm recently on this uh, kick with Harvard Business uh, Harvard Business Review's um, article from the '80s, the five stages of growth. Are you familiar with that at all, Andam? I, I, uh, I am. I, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, it, like I don't know how the hell it took me that long to get exposed to it, but they talk about the five stages and how the complexities grow. So here's here's why I'm asking this question: is because when you were going through your stages, I love the fact that you addressed it, and you didn't be like, "Hey, it's a billion, and I just got here because I was already sitting on a hundred million dollars in revenue and." 15 million in EBITDA and I hired EY and, you know, like you acknowledge the, how freaking difficult it is to get through each of these stages. And so how, like here, here's kind of what I've seen in my, in the the stages of companies that we've worked with is the complexities in the cash flow working capital become the strain because the owner finally goes, I'm making 150. And then like, just hire a GM or another truck. And they're like, with what cash? Yeah. So there's like a combination of maybe not the visibility where like you paint how you can go all the way up, but also the more you know mechanical of the cash flow and the and the complexities of it. How do you what do you, what would you say to someone that's listening in that when they hear the word billion, you know, it kind of freaks them out because I think you do a good job with that. Yeah, you know, it, it does. You know, so so uh, not too long ago, uh, a, a famous billionaire asked me to come to his house on a weekend and uh, talk to him about a business he owned. Then everybody in the world knows I got an NDA. I can't 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 talk about names, but but you know, it was struggling. You know, it's like I, I've been through three CEOs in a short period of time. It's like no one seems to be able to address my core issues. You know, how do you fix world hunger? I'm like, you don't. 
that, that that's the key. You don't fix world hunger. You fix one truck, one service call, you <laughs> yeah. know, one, one yeah, event. Right. And if I can make one work, I can make 6,000 work, you know, and, and I can replicate that math and that formula. And, you know, I, how many entrepreneurs have we heard, you know, that, that come to us and say, Oh, Adam, you know, Ryan, don't worry about it. When I get bigger, I'll figure out how to make money. And I'm like, no, wrong answer. If you can't make money small, you're never going to make money big. What we want is to make more money as we get bigger because we're creating leverage, but it's got to work small. And so I, I just I did research on numbers. I really dug in. You know, I bought 58 companies from entrepreneurs, you know, who were successful. They beat the odds. They, mm-hmm. they, they built that million dollar, 10 million dollar. Most of them seemed to top out at about somewhere between 20 and 30 million. They ran out of bandwidth. And, and so I, I really just went in, broke it down. And I started with, you know, some some personal lessons that I learned in life. You know, and it, it started with Warren Buffett, you know, some of his advice you know, which was invest in what you understand. And mm-hmm. I translate that to invest in what you know. And I gave an example from my life where I took $100,000 in. I invested in five different stocks, five different stocks that I knew. I looked at my life. What do I know? I know Amazon comes to my freaking house at least two, <laughs> three times a day and all my neighbor's houses two, three times a day. All my devices are Apple. You know, All of my applications, whether I'm on a Mac or a PC, are going to be Microsoft-based. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just... You know, I go to Home Depot every weekend. I don't go to Lowe's. Lowe's is for decorators. Home Depot is for dudes <laughs> with trucks, you know, that build stuff. And so, you know, I, I, I just inventoried what I knew. I invested hundred grand in each of five stocks. Five years later, I had a $2.5 million return. And, and so then I translate that to companies. And, and, the, and the translation is invest in what people need or build a company around needs, not wants. You know, when, when, uh, you know, I need my roof fixed when it's leaking and there's water pouring on my head. I want a new truck. I, you know, I want a new outfit, you know, but I need, you know, food for my pets or, or whatever. And I, I go through examples for product based companies mm-hmm. for real estate investors and then for services type investors. And then, you know, okay. So we, 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 because of cyclicality, we want companies, you know, if, if, if I focus on wants, especially now, Adam, I don't know, like I, I've been diving, I've got ITR economics on the podcast once a quarter and they're talking about the 2030 great depression is how they call it. Yeah. Or like what's going on with 2024. I mean, what you're talking about needs versus wants is like insanely important in my mind. Yeah. Especially if we're building a company, because if, if, if there's, a, if, if my business is based on wants during a recession or depression, you know, I can literally forego my expense forever. You know, one of the empires that I built was a, a large commercial laundry company. And what I learned during the great recession, you know, 08, 09 was that unemployed people don't do as much laundry as employed people. However, even when you're unemployed, you still got to do laundry. Right. So, you know, needs versus wants, very important to to not, you know, being somewhat insulated from the effects mm-hmm. of an economic cycle. And then, you know, I love services businesses personally, simply because there's low capital expenditure requirements. And in this mythical business that I, I build in the book, you know, as we're as we're getting up to, you know, if you want to build a $10 million landscape maintenance business, it's going to cost you about one point five million dollars in capital expenditures to do that. But it throws off 1.5 million in cash, free cash flow per year. And so, you know, I have a a net ultimate return on investment of under a year in order to, you know, but if I wanted to build a real estate business, 
that had 1.5 million of free cash flow a year. Mm-hmm. Then you know I'm probably looking at anywhere from a thirty to a sixty million dollar portfolio of rental yep. properties. Yep. yep. And and so you know insanely different kind of capital expenditure requirements for a real estate business versus just a pure services business. And so we we walk through how do I build the formula? How do I make a capital expenditure plan? You know, and then what is the behavior? as I'm rolling through the first million. And then at a million, I, I've dialed in my unit level economics. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. now one of the 7%. I'm s- successful. And as I'm going to 10 million, I'm now starting to add ancillary revenue streams. So I'm cutting a lot of lawns. Yeah, what, what, yeah I was going to say, are you yeah. going to get into your, uh, the, you got your organic levers and maybe you can kind of give it like, if you kind of go, I'm, not, I'm sorry to derail you if you were already going to go here, but you were no. talking about your third, I'm, I'm still hung up on not hung up on, and I'm I, I've cemented your thirty percent Kager when you were talking about ten percent organic, ten percent. Um, I think it was M and A acquisition was the other ten percent pricing. I can't remember what it was, but they kind of throws into your organic levers. But it maybe kind of clear up. So, that. so that's another lesson in here too is you know what's a good growth rate? Well, it needs to be thirty percent. You know, if if I've got a, a company with a, a million in revenue. You know, and I'm growing at 10. It, it it takes 7.2 years to double it to 2 million. 7.2 to go to 4 million. 7.2 to go to 8 million. I'm 21 years down the road, and I'm just now. I'm not even at 10 million in revenue. So if I'm going to build a true empire, 10 is too slow a growth rate. And so, you know, at different levels, as we get to different sizes, I start adding new tools. This is the size and stage where we want to start thinking about mergers and acquisitions. This is the size and stage we want to think about our first exit because I, I recommend to everybody, as volatile as our world is today, I hate to see entrepreneurs that have 90% of their net worth tied up in their companies who are, are getting older in age and they're assuming so much risk. You know, so I'm telling people, you know, it, it's like in my mythical business, we can take our first exit. As we approach around 30 million, you know, at 15% EBITDA, I'm sitting at about four and a half million of, uh, of EBITDA. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, could, I could ring the bell for call it between 30 and 40 million on this mythical company. Or I can keep pushing on and head to 10 million and look for that, that, that 100 to $150 million kind of sized exit. But I tell people there's no way on earth you should build an empire, you know, that has hundreds of millions of revenue and do it alone. You know, and I, I think that it's important for entrepreneurs to ring the bell, to have multiple exits, and it's okay to become a minority shareholder. It's okay to have an institutional shareholder alongside as, as, your, as your controlling shareholder. You keep building the empire, but you keep taking every three to five years when you're selling it, you know, you're taking chips off the table, you're mm-hmm. storing them against an uncertain future. And, and, and meanwhile, as you're continuing to build and roll forward, you know, when I build a spreadsheet with entrepreneurs today and I, and I say, where's your business at today? What's the revenue? What's the earnings? What's your growth rate? Let's plot this out for the next 10 years. When do you think you'd sell it? How much do you think you'd get for this business? Now let's do it my way. Let's do it a different way. Well, first let's of all, can anybody it. answer you? Like how, what percentage of people could answer that first question? Yeah. You know, I even talk about that, you know, early in the book where I'm talking about, I think my background as a pilot taught me how to think about, I don't take off without knowing where I'm going and what my destination is. And so as an entrepreneur, I love the picture. I know, I know. I loved it. As an entrepreneur, it's like, we, we start a company, we need to know where we're going. It's not some undefined destination for me, for most entrepreneurs. Look, I'm looking for you to do one of two things, build an empire on your own that gets to 4 million of EBITDA or one that gets to 10. 
and then we're going to sell it. And, and once we sell it, now we're going to bring an institutional shareholder. And every three to five years, as we continue to build it, we're going to, we're going to sell it again mm-hmm. and again and again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we open up as we get to different sizes, new tools like mergers and acquisitions, and we're creating operating leverage as we're getting bigger. In the beginning, we're an anal retentive control freak, you know, and, and yep. as we get bigger, you know, most entrepreneurs hit a glass ceiling about 20 to 30 million in revenue. Well, why don't you unpack that? Cause you, that's the second time you mentioned it too. And we, yeah. we, our, our family business topped out at one, 21 million. And I can tell you all the reasons why we did and it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah. And so remember I bought 58 companies about this size, yeah, right? right. That, that were 20 to 30 million or so in revenue. And that the entrepreneur <laughs> to be successful, to beat the odds and get to that seven, you know, be the 7% that gets to a million or the 4% of that, that got to 10 million and bigger every one of them had to be an anal retentive control freak. And so (laughs) I'm not an orchestra guy, but what I say is if you, if you think about it this way um, in an orchestra, there's sections and every section has a first chair player. That's the best of the section, you know, the best in the woodwinds and the best in percussion, (laughs) what what have you. And I, and I'm like, when you're an entrepreneur building a business, you're an anal retentive control freak. You're the first chair player in every section of the orchestra because the only way you That's can perfect. be successful is to make sure everybody does the same thing, you know, and replicates your model for success. But eventually you run out of bandwidth. Where you get, you know, the, the entrepreneurs that could, can go from 20 to 30 million to 100 are the ones who find another gear. And in that gear, they become the conductor of the orchestra rather yeah. than the first chair player. And instead of managing events, you manage process and you hire a team of people who are now mm-hmm. managing the minutia that you no longer have the bandwidth to manage. And if you can make that shift, that sets you off on a trajectory to go from it's that. It's a whole different mindset shift, isn't it? 100, like, it is. I, I had, I had a, I don't know if you're familiar with Joel Trammell. Um, he's, he was on the show uh, a couple months ago. He wrote the the chief executive operating play, uh, system. So the, it, it's super fascinating. He, how he words it, Adam, is when you go from, and I'm curious, like out of all the 58 companies you bought, how many people had this, there, there's this issue with the individual's abilities, not the business's abilities, where there's there's yep. a relationship and cor- a high correlation where he says that people have to go from managing tasks to managing and getting things done through people. That's yep. the shift when they become that CEO. That's I've struggled with that. I know my father did. A lot of our clients do because they're the technician or operators first. And then you get to that point where you're, you feel like you're on the top, but you're really just kind of like have one, you have these, like the first row, like you said. And yeah. what, what I'm also curious, like, because when I'm thinking about this uh, this journey upwards, like you're talking about, Adam, it's the business and the growth rate that you it, that you've identified. And then what what I find super fascinating is you talked about like the the ability to reinvest in the unit economics tied to this is the investor or lack of investor mindset that the original founder has. Because like what I've noticed, Adam, over the last decade that I've been doing this, it's the ability for the owner to think like an investor is like, you know what I do, Adam, when I'm in my seminars, I'm like, I say, we get into this whole conversation about uh, leadership roles versus ownership, because so many people call me up, they're like, Ryan, I want out. And for years, they try and solve their problem. And then I'm like, what the hell you want out of and where are you going? And no one can answer that. So then my point is that people would say, well, I want out of employee issues, supply chain issues, my customers, the margin compression, like that's a job. 
No one yeah. was talking about their equity position and the trade-offs between distributions and reinvestment, which there's almost like two paths that I'm seeing it as you're out breaking this down. It's like the growth path of the business and what's the mindset investor anticipate or desire for that original founder? Because like, as you were talking about it, it changes. And and that's why I I think like, you know, uh, you know, in a five hour read, reading this book, I unpack all of this stuff, Mm -hmm. but I unpack it all in order. You and I, you and I will jump around, you know, and, and talk about different rabbit holes and stuff, but it's like, I unpack it all in order. It's like, you know, this is what you should be thinking. And as you're getting to different sizes, here's the behavior you need to exhibit to be successful. But as you get bigger, there's new behavior now that you need to get successful. And as we get to that point where we're running out of bandwidth, I talk about the need to become this conductor rather than the, the first chair player. And and you know what? If you can't, if you can't make that journey, then hire somebody, you know, who can, you know, and uh, but but the bottom line is, it's too risky in today's world to not at some point sell the business the first time as an intentional event to not just create, you know, I'll call it generational wealth for yourself or get money off the table. And, and that becomes your protected nest egg. But then because I want to use other people's capital and I want to accelerate my growth trajectory and I want I'm OK being a minority shareholder. You know, so like here, here, here's a great example of this. So who's the richest person on the world in the world today? You know, is it is it Jeff Bezos? I I, I want to. I feel say like there's a Saudi Arabia someone or another. Probably. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just giving you crap. For, for, for a while, it was Jeff Bezos. You know, and, 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 and within the last year, it depends on Amazon stock's price at the time, right? You know, and you know Elon Musk. You know, all the, all these people. But you know, Jeff pointed something out recently that really stuck with me on on an interview, and I, I may misquote the number, but it's something like he's only a 12 percent owner of Amazon. And he's the richest person in the world. What does mm-hmm. that tell you? You can mm-hmm. become the richest person in the world without owning 100% of your business. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that, you know, I'm all about diversifying risk. And, and, and so a part of this journey is building a team. And I talk about building the team in here. And it's not just, you know, a team of lawyers and accountants. I also now include in this book, you know, uh, we need wealth management advice. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we need people to help us. You know, we become good at, at generating. I'm the goose that laid the golden eggs, but I don't know what the hell to do with the eggs once I've got them, right? So <laughs> totally. I, I have a wealth <laughs> management team that manages my wealth. I manage the private equity type investments because I'm an expert at that. But all the rest of it, you know, I mm-hmm. throw it all over my shoulders and, and I have a team of people that that help me invest. What, what, are, some of the beha- what are some of the behaviors of the 58 58- companies and owners that you've bought and their their relationship with their business and their wealth and their mindset is uh, like associated with their business like did they view it as wealth or paper wealth or fictitious or how did they think about it so i don't want to throw anybody under a bus these are 58 really good people and they're they're all successful um and some of them had had built and sold multiple businesses i I wrote about it recently in forbes and i I called it the the arrogance of success the unintentional arrogance Mm -hmm. of success and 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 i i say that in a loving way you know when we beat the odds and we build a business that frankly, 93% of the world couldn't build, you know, and then we've gotten to all these different levels. We start to have some kind of feeling of invincibility. You know, I I know everything, you know, because I know everything about my business, I know everything about life. And (laughs) as a result, you know, people start to either make mistakes or they just, they just find that they, as they outstrip their own capabilities, 
they 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 top out and they just they don't know how to get further, how to get higher. And it, you know, I look at life as an educational opportunity and experience. You know, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, change the room. You know, I I, I need there are times where I'm teaching a seminar, I'm supposed to be the smartest guy in the room, but there's other times in life where it's like I don't I you know you can't grow unless you're getting your you know getting exposure to new ideas and new things. And by you know whether well, it's don't you think to your group like- or coaches. Right. And don't you think like when you think about at the end of the day, and this is where all things consider with the, the shit storm that's going on with interest rates, supply chain issues, geopolitical issues, employee issues. I mean, you know, yep. we, we don't have a short uh, list of those things going on. No matter what, the name of the game is sustainable, predictable and transferable future cash flow. Yeah. And the moment that we forget that is when the, I think to your what I'm hearing out of that, too, is. The moment that arrogance is help is blinding us from the things that could sabotage our future cash flow, and we think we're too confident, then like, like you're you're just taking unnecessary risk because of your own ego. You, you are, and so there's there's a second stage to this too, which is interesting. So I, I call the unintentional arrogance of success is one piece of it. And that mm-hmm. usually happens, you know, when we're when we're building these empires. But there's another bucket of it that occurs when we get over about age fifty. If we have not monetized our event, you know, if we haven't, you know, taken some asset diversification, gotten some chips off the table, we start to get conservative again. And, and we, we worry about the future and all the volatility and, geez, I'm going to retire soon. I better not open that new branch. I better not buy that new piece mm-hmm. of equipment or that, that you know, I better not make these investments. You know, I'm on the downward stroke now. And as a result, we start making bad business decisions and we, we prevent our success from getting higher because we become risk averse. And so when when I tell people you you sell, bring in a partner, roll forward, continue as a minority shareholder, when I've got the 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 wealth diversification handled, I can go back to being aggressive now. And I am mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like going to Vegas and it's like I, I'm on a blackjack table and I'm up so much. I put my original money back in my pocket. Now I'm playing with house money and, you know, I can get aggressive in business. Same thing is that as I get the diversification, I can be in my 50s and 60s and I can swing for the fences because I'm using someone else's money. I'm a co-investor now as a minority shareholder, but I can remain aggressive and look for growth opportunities and pursue them. And so I see well, the I, I want to give a, I want to drop out an amazing uh, example. Cami Graff was on my show. I don't know if you're, she's familiar, uh, you're familiar with her, but she, uh, Tax Act was the software that she created. Yeah. And uh, so like, I mean, it's one of the top three, the DOJ stopped her sale to, into it for, I mean, like that's when you're on the rate of other people and she sold the PE amazing story and her whole deal was she goes we we were getting conservative even though they were like printing money at them oh my god dude (laughs) i uh yeah anyways ridiculously profitable business but she said that how the irs was going through things that they ended up having a free version that was tied onto the irs website that she's like we never would have done that otherwise if it was only my asset she goes but we decided because we all sat down with a shared pool of money we said we're all willing to take this risk which is a, a really cool example yeah and, and so it's it's important and and i think as entrepreneurs we get so immersed in our day-to-day business and lives that we don't see these larger events and it's like i'm a pawn on a chessboard and I'm, I'm one of the pieces on the board and I can't see the forest through the trees. And, and so, 
I, you know, I try to teach people how to, you know, kind of get up above the chessboard and, and reassess and become strategic again. And there's different levels as we're building these businesses where, where these issues come into play. And so, you know, as a guy who's been on the journey and, and has had billion dollar exits, you know, in, in my past, you know, it's like my goal and objective now is to help others be successful. You know, I wish someone would have handed me my books when I was 21, you know, instead of me writing them, you know, at, at age in my 50s, you know, and now 59. And, and you know, so, so much wisdom that we can learn from other people. And it's not that I was God's gift to anything. It's that I made every mistake you can you make over a 35-year period. And, and so as a result of that, you don't have to. Because Pardon the brief interruption. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Adam and specifically about how fluidly we're talking about valuations, deal structures, getting a return and how operations tie to the ultimate return of growing a valuable company. One of the best ways is to view your company as a financial asset and look at your numbers in a light that you probably haven't seen before. And if your financials are organized in a way that makes sense, where your operational data is tied to all three financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, you tie that to a target valuation at a point in time, so your target normalized EBITDA, you can reverse engineer your entire plan. And if that's something that's of interest to you, all you have to do is book a short discovery call with me and my team where I want to know a little bit more about you, the business, where you're at right now and where you want to go and some of your challenges. We'll walk through our offering of the financial dashboard offering versus the CFO services. And if it's a good fit, we offer a complimentary financial assessment where my team will plug in our financial dashboard, analyze your numbers, and then come back with our thoughts and a view of the dashboard in the spirit of trying to figure out whether it's a good fit to work together or not, there's no obligation, but it all starts with a discovery call and then a potential complimentary financial assessment if it's a good fit. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the rest of the interview with Adam. What I like about the the approach that you're taking, Adam, is it, it's you were an operator doing it, right? I like, and that's one of the big things that I'm trying to make sure people continue to remember is like, who's giving you the advice? Is it academic or academia yeah. or is it someone that... I said it with I had a, uh, a bunch of my entrepreneur buddies like unless it payroll if someone managed payroll working capital and taxes I'm willing to I'm willing to give them yeah. a solid listen and yeah. one thing that when you talk about you've been through the journey there's a couple of things I want I want to touch on is and whatever order you'd want is the the pyramid the EBITDA multiple and arbitrage yeah. pyramid but also. I don't want to forget, and that's why I'm dropping both these seeds right now, is is the the evolution of the day-to-day activities that one of these founders could find themselves in. Because I think, Adam, that is a very fascinating journey where like, as you know, we'll unpack the multiple arbitrage and that, because that's really like the wealth creation and the 30% CAGR and that that EBITDA pyramid is amazing for wealth creation. And I think the listeners will grab onto that and get it. So maybe we tackle that first. But then I think, Adam, you know what I think a lot of people struggle with that I come across? like with Because I've done like almost 40 Vistage workshops this year and like a dozen keynotes too. So similar to you, I got this huge exposure to these, these entrepreneurs, but they don't know what the day-to-day responsibility and the job looks like after yeah. a certain point. So there, I think that's one of the limiting things outside of the finance side. So I don't know which, which one of those topics you want to tackle. Yeah, first. Well, let, let's start with what I'll call the PE pyramid or what I like to call the PE pyramid. And, you know, as we're building companies, so again, I, I told you there were 33 million small businesses in America. You know, I like to think of private equity. 
and, and why should we care about private equity? Because there's $5 trillion plus of it. It's the world's largest non-bank lender to business. It's because of private equity that there is a market we can sell companies to other than other people who want to come in and run them. Uh, and so they've created the market for selling mm-hmm. companies. And, you know, and so, so our goal and objective is to build wealth. And we do that by increasing the size of our empire. And I, I like to tell people, imagine, if you will, a pyramid. You're looking at a pyramid and the pyramid has five layers. Each of those five layers represents what I call a swim lane. So there's 6,000 PE firms and they're aggregated up the side of one, one side of the pyramid. And you've got really big firms at the top like KKR and Apollo and Blackstone and, and people that we all know, you know, and, and then there's thousands of firms, you know, all up and down that pyramid. They all do the same thing. They all invest six to 8% of their fund in one company. And they all can't invest more than about 12% because of asset diversification, um, you know, the, their desire to not have too much, you know, too much invested in any one company. And so they all do the same thing. They're all looking for the same return. And that mm-hmm. means if I'm Blackstone at the top and I got a $30 billion fund, I can't buy small companies because it would take me a thousand years to put all my money yeah. to work buying small mm-hmm. companies. So big firms buy big companies, small firms buy small companies. As a result of that, there's five natural layers to this pyramid. And every time we step up one level, we're rewarded with with multiple expansion. So the amount of money that our business will sell for goes up because as we get bigger, we're climbing the pyramid. The pyramid's getting narrower at the top. 33 million small companies just in America in the bottom. At the top of the pyramid, only 3,000 companies on the planet with more than a billion dollars in revenue. And so as we get bigger, we get rare. As we get Mm -hmm. rare, we're more valuable and bigger funds will pay much more for our business. So our goal, really, when we're building a business, it isn't getting bigger for the sake of being bigger. It's getting bigger to climb the pyramid and to be rewarded with higher multiples when it's time to actually sell the business. And so all entrepreneurs who start a business are probably thinking in their mind, at some point, I'm going to sell this thing. I like to actually engineer it and 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 pick where my exit points are and make sure that I'm hitting one of those so I'm rewarded with, with multiple expansions. So if you take any business in any industry, up the left side of the pyramid is the range of multiples that we trade for. And at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, if I take my last empire build as an example, I was buying, I bought 23 companies in five years. I bought eight in the first three years. I bought 15 in the next two years. Did you go up the pyramid and as you were scaling I went to? up two steps, yeah. you know, up the pyramid. And so I'm buying all my companies at about five times. I'm selling my combined company at about 14 times. So for every dollar of earnings I buy down low, I'm selling it for $14 when it's time to exit. Banks loan me 100% of the $5 I needed to buy it. I pay off the debt when I sell it for 14 and and the wealth creation is tremendous. And so I'm an orchestra, you know, conductor on a big stage and I'm doing it with, you know, large institutional shareholders who got massive amounts of capital and I decided, you know, hey, th- this is how private equity makes its money. Wouldn't it be fun if I stepped out of the CEO seat and came down and I taught entrepreneurs down in the bottom two levels of the pyramid how to do this themselves 
you know, ahead of time to help them accelerate growth. And so I've been doing that for the last two years. I've been having a blast. It like reinvigorated my career. It's like, what, what, why should I be an orchestra on this giant stage building billion dollar companies when I can help, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands, whatever it winds up being entrepreneurs through my seminars, through my books, I can help them all become conductors of an orchestra. And so that's what I've been doing. So, so when I think about what we're trying to do, I start with an end in mind. I'm going to go up the pyramid one step. I'm going to go up the pyramid a second step. You know, this is one hold period with one owner. I'll sell it another hold period, another owner. You know, you can go up five. You could have five different private equity owners as you're climbing the pyramid before you hit public company markets, before size just dictates and mandates you can't stay private anymore. You need to go public. Well, and, and what's in what I, a couple comments, Adam, is like I, out of God, man, I, I, I had to, I have to have had at least a hundred plus interviews with people that are PE backed or in the PE space. There's yeah. two stories that I'm thinking of that outside of yours that, um, hammers home that what you just said is possible. Blue sky, uh, restoration. I don't know if you're familiar with those yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were on the podcast and, uh, they're on their third PE, uh, partner right now. And then service express, um, is, uh, is, uh, Ron, Alva Stuffer, and he's on his third one too. And they literally have had hit every single stage that you're talking about. And they, but what I think was important about their stories from what I gathered, Adam, is they were clear on what the company's potential was the whole time. And so they, it was almost like what you're saying is what they did is they said, Hey, this is what the company is capable of being. And then they just changed their capital partners on the way versus yep. someone going, Hey, I need money. And then they're just chasing to the person yeah. that has the money. I, I lay it out here. I've got a graphic yep. in my book which yep. shows love the it. PE pyramid. So pe people we'll put, it, like, we'll put an image in the show notes for the for the yeah, listeners. Yeah, and, and so it's it's uh, you know. So the second part of your question was 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 kind of the evolution of the entrepreneur and what are they doing at these different stages? And again, remember to beat the odds to be one of only seven percent of business owners who not only survive but they get to a million in revenue or being one of the 4% that get to 10 million, you had to be an anal retentive control freak. You really had to be dialed in on everything that was going on. You had to know all, be in front of all, and you had to really put your arms around this business to get it to grow to that certain stage. But then it's like no one teaches you the different behaviors, and so you continue being what you are, <laughs> and that's why you top out at like this glass ceiling and you you got to learn how to make these entrepreneurial shifting gears. And so, you know, it's all about unit level economics and and, and, and and creating a repetitive nature of profitability when you're small. When you finally get to call it that $10 million size, all kinds of new opportunities open up. And in order to take advantage of those you have to stop managing minutia and start really managing strategy and process. And, and I lay out, you know, how to go into adjacent markets and, you know, the, the different methodologies. And, and again, at some point I want a partner. I want, is that, what, is that where you would bring up? Is that, that, yeah, that's another one. Okay, yeah, maybe we can get to that in a second. I was I was holding up another graphic for the listeners then, but yeah, you keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, not at all. So it, it's like, and, and I think people who, you know, I, I've said this before. It's like, you know, if, if I tell you get in a car and drive and you're in L.A. and I don't tell you where to go, you drive around in circles. If I tell you get in a car and drive to New York, you know you're headed east. You know it's a more than a one-day trip. You're going to have to stop. You're going to have to create waypoints. And 
you know, there's a, a certain amount of things and behaviors that you'll build into the trip and then you'll be successful. The problem with most people when they start is they don't have the destination mapped out and they don't know when they've arrived, you know, and they just do they even know where they are. Usually, oftentimes not, you know, and, and so they're on that treadmill and they're running through life. And, you know, before long, it's like 20 years have gone by. And no matter how wealthy we are, the one thing we can't buy is time. Mm-hmm. And we have such a finite amount of time in our careers that we have to be efficient with the use of that time. And so if, if a business isn't going to work, I want it to fail in the first million not 20 years later while I'm struggling, you know, to get it to 10 million and I, I'm not making any money along the way. I'm just eking out a living. And now I've got a garbage pile and I'm trying to sell it so I can retire. You know, yeah, that's it's like, yeah, yeah. Right. And, um, one of the things that I think, uh, Oh God, I think I might've just lost it. Um, I was thinking about the, the journey up, uh, come on, come on, Ryan. Um, so, oh, I know the, the destination. So here, here's what I've noticed with all of my events and, and exposure is valuations is becoming one of my obvious massive topics that people don't understand. It's from what I've gathered, Adam. So like, cause like we can sit here and you and I could talk about multiples and arbitrage and like how you're going to like multi, you know how much the debt to equity ratio are we going to be leveraging all that stuff. But if people don't know how valuations work, so like, I mean, like, and I'm curious because of how many deals and how many entrepreneurs you've talked to, especially in the same size, like the Visage crowd that um, I speak a lot to is like, what is their, what is your experience with their understanding of valuations in general? Well, first I'll tell you, they have almost no understanding of their own finances, you know? So I, I, I coach people on the income statement. And I, I, I consider the income statement, it's a set of stairs and I'm walking down the stairs. And if I have my finances set up properly, you know, I have revenue at the top. I take out my direct operating expenses. I get to gross profit. I take out my SGNA, you know, I get to my, my EBITDA, you know, and it's like, and I, and I map out the walk down the stairs. And, and when I get into a business for the first time, what I often find is there's one step, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a jumbled mess of goo. And and keep I in mind, I, okay. I, 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 I had to say to someone recently, I'm like, I hate to break it to you, you don't have 100 percent margins, you just don't have cost of goods. Yeah, yeah. It's and so what I tell people is, look, all the IRS cares is about two things: do you know how much you made, and do you know how much your profit is? Because that's what you got to pay taxes for. IRS doesn't care about anything in the middle, and I hate to say it, but most accountants don't care about anything in the middle either. And so oftentimes when I get into working with an entrepreneur, the, the first thing we have to do is kind of get the chart of accounts straightened out, make sure that expenses are hitting the, the income statement at the appropriate places so I can apply the 30-20-10 rule to see what kind of health the business has. Yeah. Yeah. And, as, and then I can help coach them. And so I, I would say most entrepreneurs that I meet don't have a good command of their financial statements, their basic financial statement, and they don't have a good picture for what the true financial performance of the business is. That's number one. Number two, even if they've got that right, uh, oftentimes they're fixated on, you know, on, on my revenue. Well, I don't sell as a, as a, as a, as a multiple of my revenue. I sell as a multiple of my earnings. And yes, it does matter what my earnings are. And in most entrepreneurial, you know, journeys, it's like, they're programmed to not pay taxes. And so mm-hmm. we write mm-hmm. everything off we can, 
you know, and it's like, I have zero income. Well, congratulations. If you're selling a business with zero income, you're getting zero for it because <laughs> I know, it needs, because it's because <laughs> yeah, it needs to have income because you sell it as a multiple of earnings, not as a multiple of revenue um, and with, with few exceptions. And so it, it, end result is I, I, I think most entrepreneurs are probably really good tactically at operations, whatever their operations are. You know, if they run a service business, they know dudes and trucks and stuff. And if they're real estate investors, they understand what a good property looks like and how much I can charge for rent. But but they seldom outside of their niche have a broader area of expertise, you know, that's in what mm-hmm. I'll call finance and accounting and and investments, even investments. Mm-hmm. You know, we we touched on that. So what happens when we sell a company and we get a pot of gold? First thing we have to do is figure out where to invest it. So right. I'm a big you know, proponent of, well, why not roll over some, keep it invested where you're at and keep on building the company because that's your area of expertise. Take a bunch of money home, hire a wealth manager to to manage it. Just make sure his last name's not made off, you know, and uh, <laughs> better you know, or, Sam, or Sam Bankman Freed or, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like, you know, make sure you got real people, you know, that know what the, the heck they're doing and and they're real companies. But, you know, so it, it's as entrepreneurs, we have to recognize that our area of expertise is narrow and highly focused. And I think the biggest hindrance to our, our continued growth and success is not realizing that we need to surround ourselves with other people who've got other areas of expertise mm-hmm. that can help us expand and grow. I've got one client I'm working with now. He's got a, 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 an empire that's worth well over $100 million. And, you know, he's got investments all over the globe. And I, and I told him, you know, what you're missing is you need a chief of staff. You know, you need a, a CFO, you know, instead of running around from one continent to another, attending meeting after meeting, you need a team of people. You need to figure out which rooms you need to be in and which rooms other people can be in in order for you to increase your bandwidth so that we can take that hundred plus million dollar empire and turn it into a five hundred million dollar empire in the next five years. You know, and I call it, I write about it and I talk about it in here too. It's, it's high value work versus low value work. Mm-hmm. And, and all of us in any job, there's things we do that we have to do. It must get done. It's important, but it's low value work. And then there's high value work. When I'm strategic and I'm thinking with my mind about building a, a, an empire and monetizing it and my strategy around value creation, that's high value work. You know, when I'm with my clients and I'm talking to them about their businesses, that's high value work. Doing invoices every month, you know, that's low value work, but it's got to be done. So someone's got to be doing. So we, we, we have to learn as entrepreneurs, where's our sweet spot? Where's the, you know, how do we offload low value work? So we focus more and then how time. does it, how does, how do you keep shedding as you're going up the pyramid too, right? Going back to like where you're, sure probably doing a lot of the work as a technician. And then as you get that next layer of management and you get some scale, then you're becoming more the manager that maybe the front line, then the CEO, then more the probably, you know, you're working on M&A at some point, you know, you're a capital allocator, family offices, probably to the point of where you want to get to. If, yeah. if that, if that's, if that's the track. And, and interestingly enough, as, as you, as you mentioned that, you know, it was just dawning on me, you know, in my career, I've held every job a person can hold on an org chart. And, and so literally I was the dude in the truck, you know, mm-hmm. and then I was the dude in the truck's manager. And then I was the regional man. And I mean, as I climb my way up an org chart all the way to CEO, you know, and now executive chairman of some companies, you know, I, I, 
I think I learned those behaviors about what to do at different sizes because I actually did the journey as an employee. And when we make it as an owner, there's nobody to hold us accountable. Nobody except mm-hmm. ourselves. And so, you know, I, I work with a lot of owners too, who, who, you know, some of them unfortunately are struggling in a, in a tough economy in, in some areas. And, you know, it, it's like the only person that can make, you know, make it acceptable to earn 4%, you know, or 2%, you know, in a year is you, you know, and if I was the CEO of your company, if, if this was reversed and I had a board of directors, you know, I'd be fired, you know, if right. I didn't hit you know, you know, my I, targets. And- I agree, Adam. And you know what a way that I like to think about this is, is like when, if, if I, I force people to start thinking like an investor. So if you and I had a 10, $10 million to invest and we were looking for a million dollar cash flow company, we want that cash flow to grow, right? Like that's our yeah. only objective. If we yeah. and I are going to place the money down, we want to place the money down so it grows. Yeah. And you and I, if we understand this game, we could go to manufacturing, we could go to SaaS, we could go to yep. services, we could go to e-commerce, and then we're going to look at the risks of all those, and then we're going to yep. look at the people, and we're just we're just going to go down the layer of like, are we going to get more money back? <laughs> that's, yeah. like, that's it. And like, I just find it so interesting. Like, for the people that choose to get that two percent return and choose to continue slogging through it, it's like you're just choosing to re like by keeping your company, you're rebuying the same crappy situation over yeah. and over again instead of stepping back and like and I don't know if it's because so many people the founders came up from their their skill set that were like they don't realize like I could actually place a million dollars in manufacturing even though I'm in distribution you know what I mean like yeah. or like whatever it might it's like this this narrative is like, hey, I have to stay in my lane. But like what you're and, talking and about, I, we're again, at I everything. think when people top out, that's one of the reasons why they stay topped out is mm-hmm. there's no one to hold them accountable. And you know, if 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 my growth rate is zero percent, you know, my board, you know, is going to give me a pass for the first year and fire me by the end of the second and bring in somebody else. And the mandate mm-hmm. is you're going to grow at thirty percent, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Mm-hmm. or Mrs. CEO. Because that's what's required. I think a lot of times as an entrepreneur, we don't know what good growth is. And when we plateau, we accept it, you know, and Mm -hmm. we don't push ourselves to try to reinvent ourselves and try to figure out how to navigate higher. And so it's a, it's a lack of accountability. And I think peer groups and having mentors and, and coaches, that's where we start to try to put some accountability you know, in and, and get somebody else's input on, on our level of success. One, one of the things that I, that, I, that I see that people struggle with in these groups, Adam, is people don't, people go in there and I'm trying to help people burst through this is like, it's all these revenue goals. Yeah. <laughs> Who gives a shit? We yeah. own a $21 million company that lost a million bucks in 09. It doesn't matter. We, if we would have sold, we'd owe the bank money. So it's like, I'm trying to help people think through that where it's like, when even with these, these peer groups, to your point that you've made multiple times is like, what's the goal though? It has to be the right goal yeah. and it has to be a valuation goal based on earnings, not just some arbitrary revenue goal that made you feel good in front of your peers. And I just, I find it so fascinating how long this has kept up. You yeah. know what I mean? We're like in, in, I, I want to go back cause you'd mentioned the financials. You talked about the stepping down in the income statement. And again, I, I, we said this before we hit record is like, I was in, I got a dean accounting. I was a copy sales rep, and I didn't realize this over until the last handful of years. It's like I, the ability to read, especially a cash flow statement. We were a distribution business. I mean, like yeah. everybody, we were everybody's bank. 
<laughs> because we yeah. didn't know what the hell we were doing. And so I, I find it like, again, I, I'm saying, I'm going on this rabbit hole because we thought we were different and we thought everybody else had it figured out. And I had that narrative for a long time with on the, on the financials. And then what I've noticed, Adam, is even the most, like I take an owner of a marketing agency or something like where it's more creative than more like engineering, where engineers like kind of grab under the numbers is like business owners. I mean, like, like if, instead of diving into cash conversion cycle and saying that, I'm like, Hey, do you think you can pay payroll with your receivables? Or like, no. And like, yeah. how about your inventory? No. How about it? So I'm like, I think here, here's where I'm going with this. I've met so many entrepreneurs and out of the 58 that you've bought, they've been able to tell one hell of a story of where they've been, where they are and where they're going. But then you say, prove it. And then they fall short. Yeah. And it's like, it's like this massive gap in the financial situation, Adam. And I can't, because I mean, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and I can't wrap my head around how did it get this way? And I've got a couple of theses, but I'm curious with how many deals you've looked at. What is, what's the situation, man? Well, I think for, for most people, it's like they don't know the mechanics of success because they've achieved some level of success. And so therefore they've never had to learn or adapt. And when times get tough, there's nobody to challenge them. And so they accept the level they're at and everything, you know, everything gets cloudy from from that point on. And that's why I, I buy a lot of 20 to $30 million companies. And I don't find a lot of $100 million companies to buy is because there is this issue and problem. And if people, you know, if people can, you know, can ultimately pick up and 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 become more financially aware and astute and then that's where they leave the one plateau and they start to mm -hmm. find additional runway to climb so it's it, it, it doesn't it, have it does it have to do with with all the companies that you've been a part of it so let me let me let, here's part of my thesis i want to i want to know if you like totally think i'm crazy or not so like because i i'll look at these these companies and i'm like how did you get to 70 million without caring about the cash flow statement? I just can't wrap my head around it. And so here's my, yeah. unless you want to give, if you want to rally off of that first. Well, I was just going to say, I've met, Ryan, I've met billionaires that I look at and I think, huh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they're, they're not any more sophisticated than some of the other people I, I've run into and, and encountered. They just. So you know, here's, here's why Adam, and like, what do you think? Does this hold up? And again, this is like, this is back the napkin, me sitting down with a glass of wine going, what in the hell is going on here? And, but it's like, I, I say, so market demand, cause like there has to be a demand, like right after, after how you start this needs, not wants. So market yep. demand is met with entrepreneurial hustle. And that's yep. where like Mark Cuban talks about like, as long as you're in the game, you can meet the demand. And then the third factor, what I've wrapped my head around is the business model where like a good cash conversion cycle. And that's a geeky part of this. But like, if you get customer deposits, like your e-commerce, your insurance, your distributor or construction, you get cash from someone else, you don't have to give a shit about the cash flow statement because you just keep going. We've brought yep. on clients, Adam, as for our, our dashboard or our CFO services where they have negative equity because they've taking too much money out, but there's still millions of dollars in cash in the company. And I'm just like, so like my dad and I topped out because, you know, we were just looking at the income statement, but as a distributor, we got million five in payroll or in payables. We got a million eight in receivable, you know, and like it, it, we were stretched thin and we couldn't by gut scale anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and keep in mind that, that not all businesses, not every business on the planet, can get to a hundred million or a, a billion in revenue. Sometimes we 
we maximize the potential of a business or a market. And, and that's Good where point. I talk about the need and ability mm-hmm. to make strategic pivots. And if, if we, if we've kind of topped out on market share for a given territory, for a given industry, what other strategic pivots can we make in order to build a, a larger addressable market where we can then find additional growth? And, and so, you know, there, there's no end to finding creative ways, you know, to, to grow a business, but we, we have to know where to look. And we, we, we what we are your to, sort of again, recommendations for uh, like market research of like total addressable market? Because as you talk about in the book, fragmented markets for sure. Then you got different geographic locations. What are some of your, your, um, preferences for like research tools well so you can spend a lot of money or you can spend a little money and you know on most industries i can just do simple google searches and i can find some database that'll give me you know call it a directional idea of how big a given market is you know there are certainly companies out there like bcg or bain or a bunch of lek a bunch of different consulting firms that i can hire and as a PE buyer, if I'm working with a PE firm, it's like, hell, they'll spend a million dollars to figure out a hundred page mm-hmm. answer to what I can find in a 30 second Google. But, you know, but at least somebody's got to look and then there has to be, you know, a, a detailed report when we're spending a lot of money and, and we have a fiduciary responsibility. So I'm, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but, you know, generally what I find is I start with, you know, large, you know, I need a large addressable market and I need to be, you know, in a highly fragmented industry because I'm going to do buy and build and I want to buy stuff cheap. And so in a highly fragmented market, there's too many companies available, not enough buyers, purchase prices stay low. But as I aggregate them together, I climb the pyramid. And on top of all that, I'm going to I'm going to get it growing organically and I'm going to make strategic pivots and add new products and and revenue streams. And, you know, it's like it it, once you know how how to do this and you know the secrets to it, you know, it, it. becomes easy. It becomes second nature. And mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately, for a lot of entrepreneurs, there's just no one to challenge them. You know, there's I no one right. to say, okay, congratulations, you were successful. Now what? You mm-hmm. know, now well, what? And Adam, and, and I know what I, I'm... I'm trying to be self-aware of whether it's a confirmation bias because like, I mean, we built out a financial dashboard and a CFO services over the last three and a half, four years because of the education part demanding this, or the people that went through our training. And I see that the, these masterminds, Adam, and everybody can go in there and just spew BS. Yeah. Unless you're looking at the numbers. Cause it's like the numbers don't lie. And you know that from buying companies, I'm sure you said, I'm sure you heard lots of really good stories and then all come the numbers and you're like, was that the same story? Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I, I would also tell you that interesting, you know, little factoid about my career. I'm not God's gift to a, a balance sheet, you know, or I, I certainly know income statements real well or, or to cash flow statements. I always have CFOs and I have accounting departments and I expect them to, to be the experts, you know, and talk to me about the finances and, and you know, what, what are the issues and, you know. What, Let's talk about the people then, because I think it, that what I really loved is you started everything with you got to have the right people. Yeah. And you're talking about the culture. I have watched people that have more money than they know what to do with Adam and they can't figure it out. I mean, and I, I just think about like, well, there's one thing that Mike Bloomberg pr- uh, proved back in 2020 is even a half a billion dollars can't buy people's trust because <laughs> he spends. Yes. And so yes. like, what, 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 you can't, money doesn't fix it. It's the people. So like, what did you learn about the people that you had around you? 
So, uh, you know, uh, what I recognize early on in my career, I've always run service businesses. And that is you can't every company I've run, you could not store its product in a box and put it on a shelf. And, you know, when something breaks, you take down a box of service and crack it open and sprinkle it and magically stuff starts working again. And so if you can't store your company's product in a box, and I would argue in today's world that even if you're a manufacturer, everything revolves around people and culture. Um, but if you can't store your company's product in a box, your product's people. And so mm-hmm. your focus needs to be on building a really strong culture to get an engaged workforce who takes care of customers, who give us more stuff and revenue rains from the skies. You know, I want to grow revenue and earnings. In order to do that, I need people servicing customers and delighting them with whatever my product or service is. And in today's world, boy, you know, everybody wants to be a TikTok star. Nobody wants to work for a living. And, and, and I'm going to be a social media influencer. Great. If we're all social media influencers, where the hell is the money coming to buy all the products we're going to social media influence? It's like somebody's <laughs> got to work. And then when our, our our toilet's backed up, you know, who's going to come fix that thing? You know, when my my app doesn't fix it for me, you know, and we're not ready for robot plumbers yet. You know, so it, it's I, I think about, you know, it's tough in today's world to get people to want to come work. And so we have to pay a fair wage. We have to have good benefits. We have to provide growth opportunities for people uh, because we're competing with, you know, I, I mean, th- th- think about, you know, just some of our industries like, like trades-based businesses, the shortage that we have oh of tradespeople because no one's been going to trade school. No one's been coming back in as the baby boomers are, 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 are tapping out, you know, and, and getting to retirement age. There's nobody coming in behind them. And so, you know, we, we, we need to be good stewards to people. And I would tell you that I, I knew that a long time ago. And I think I was somewhat of a maverick because I was preaching the gospel of culture, you know, it, in 2001. Way before and it was popular. To, to, you know, to, today it's, it's popular. Everyone has to. You can tell the difference between companies that pay it, pay, pay it lip service versus those that truly believe in, in culture. And you see it in their numbers and their performance. But, you know, I, I honestly believe that you can generate profit by by and also have a strong culture that takes care of people. These are not mutually exclusive concepts. And I, I think the earlier we learn that, the more we can solve for our people issues. And so what would for you me, what would be your words of uh, caution or advice or whatever it would be for the listeners who, uh, you know, you got the private equity firms out there who don't believe that. But then you have the ones that do believe that. And, you know, there's there's the typical narrative like, you know, private equity will grind you to a pulp and squeeze the last little, you know, uh, piece of red juice or, you know, last uh, squeeze of juice out of that compared to someone that treats them well. And I always say that if you've you've seen one PE firm, you've seen one. So I try and make sure that that's kind of the narrative that people have. Well, you know, there's 6,000 PE firms out there. So you have good and and bad and ugly in any industry that has $5 trillion in assets under management and thousands of companies that are are out there. And and so I think that, you know, in in my, I'll I'll go back to uh, in 2020, you know, when when COVID was hitting, Aries was my uh, PE sponsor at the time, one of the largest PE firms on, on the, the planet. Matter of fact, they're the world's largest non-bank lender and huge PE firm. They helped me start a foundation and they seeded the money for that foundation. And the sole purpose in the beginning was to help our employees who were impacted negatively by COVID. So 
you can't talk to me about PE firms all wanting to grind the last you know penny of profit. I've worked with plenty who who did care about employees and they cared about growth. And so I would tell you is it goes back to entrepreneurs not understanding private equity, not understanding what a good fit is, not understanding what questions to even ask about, am I working with a good partner? Would they be a good steward? You know, is their reputation mm-hmm. good? And so I, I would tell you there's good, there's bad in any industry. And there are, keep in mind, you know, you hear the news never reports anything good. They only report bad things. And, you know, there are some PE firms that are out there that are distressed asset firms that are looking for problems, you know, right before the chains go on the door and they come in and, and buy them up. And sometimes, you know, the carnage that results is, uh, is 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 not the best looking, but had they not come in, you know, right. there would have been not, carnage anyway. You know, it's hundred you know, percent. You know, 100%. so I've 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 been around all different kinds of, of investors that that are looking at different types of assets. So I think just generally having a broader understanding and knowledge base, you know, leads to uh, an ability for an entrepreneur to grow a company to be wiser about decisions that have to get made at different sizes. And then when it comes time to exit, what what consti- constitutes a good exit path and strategy? And, you know, you just hit on, you know, in the last five minutes, all three of my books, you know, it's like. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, know what I like, want, Adam, and that's why I want people to pick up all your books, to listen to this podcast. It, it It's not about mandating someone going to private equity. You know what I want, Adam, for anybody? And I think about. Because I just have such a vivid uh, memory of like when my father and I were going through this exit, talking to all these advisors and having no freaking clue what anybody's talking about. And the thing that I want for people is I like if you and I were going to do a deal, Adam, I want to sit down and I want to know, is Adam a good guy? Are we going to be aligned on strategy for the company, aligned with people, the systems, the processes, the markets, the pivoting, all that stuff? All the other shit is mechanical. Right. What I see is like, if all of a sudden you're like, I've been focusing on revenue, gross profit in my checking account for the last 20 years. And now Adam's talking about multiple arbitrage and, you know, roll carried in and carried interest and rolled equity. And like, they're trying to, they're, they're, they're trying to understand that. And they're not focused on, is Adam a good guy? Are we aligned? And yeah. that's why I think there's so many deals that get blown up. I just want someone to know this. So that way it's kind of like, instead of someone playing checkers they sit down and they know that they're going to play chess with you and then they can have good conversations and banter yeah. while they're playing well, and, chess. You know, and, and i'll tell you along those lines you know when someone calls me with an opportunity and they think of me as an industry expert i know they don't understand my value when they call me and they think of me you know hey adam i've got the the best idea ever and i need your wallet i know they don't understand the value i bring to the table it's like you know it's like that's not that's not how life works. You know, I, I was the CEO of, you know, I, I'm not an industry expert in anything. You know, the first time I was an industry expert in each of the companies I ran in those industries was the day someone hired me as a CEO to run them. Right. right. And so I become an instant, you know, so someone says, geez, you're an HVAC guy or you're a laundry guy or, or, you know, or a medical devices guy. And it's like, you know, no, I'm not, you know, it's like what I do, you know, Business. is generic and it works in any industry. You know, I, you put me in any industry and I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to maximize the potential of the company that I'm given. Um, and, and that's a process. That's, that's a, that's a generic application of a tool set 
towards mm-hmm. any industry, any company. And so, and so it begs the question, Ryan, why the hell don't we do something together? <laughs> maybe, maybe we ought to, maybe that's the, that's the next, that, that's podcast. the play. That's the next yeah. play. That's the next play. Yeah. Um, well, and cause like, I, it's like what, what we just said, Adam is like, I want people to realize that this is actually the game. Like the yeah. game is not sell more stuff to more people. That's part of the game. That's one play of the game, but like to own and build and grow a company and not make it valuable is insane. Why would you do that? (laughs) So it's like, I think to your point, it's like, Hey, this is the name of the game. And so like, same thing with me, man. It's like, if you talk about an e-commerce business distribution, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'll tell you what, I'm very happy. I'm not still talking about copiers every single day because that would suck. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and, and, but uh, yeah, I, I think you know, I'm involved is- in a dozen companies now, right now, Ryan. And I, I got to tell you, the vast, you know, I, I, I want to say there's only one where I have any industry experience at all, you know, and it's decision making. Don't you think it's decision making on the way to yes. building that wealth? Right. Yeah. And it's like the wrong decision, especially the higher up you go. It's a real big deal if you make the wrong decision. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there are some industries I like better than others for financial reasons or fragmented market or growth or tailwinds versus headwinds. But there's but there's really no shortage of places where I could find great people and great companies. And for me, it's the people part you got to get right first. Mm-hmm. Get that yep. right, the rest follows. So um that agreed 100 percent that but it's my next question is going to counter uh counteract that. And I know we're running short on time here, but I just wanted to as we're wrapping up is I've got this, like, I've got this back of my mind of like, kind of this like fragmented picture of like kind of the PE landscape. Cause I can't look up and be like, where's every single investment? Who are the funds? Where are they at? But like, I can only imagine the investment thesis that these people raise with the IRR that they preached with the fra- I mean, yeah. every single association I go to, to speak at them, people are like, Oh my God, did you know that private equity is in here? And they don't know that I'm like, it's in the veterinary clinic. It's in yeah. the water treatment business. Yeah. It's in the HVAC business. It's in the it's in the death business. It's in every single industry. <laughs> I tell everybody, it's like you know, you can't go a day, you can't go twenty four hours without somebody without encountering a logo of somebody owned by private. You can't even go camping in Denali by yourself. It's <laughs> half your camping gear will be from a company that's owned by private equity. It's yeah, like it's, 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 yeah. it's everywhere. So with that said, and with the couple trillion that's already been raised with the thesis, right? So whether it's one or two or 1.5, I don't really care, but there's like, there's this, the GPs have raised this money and they had the IRR that they had, you know, committed to, or, you know, thrown out there. And when you have rates that get turned upside down like this, and the margin compression, and you have all the, because, you know, uh, G, um, Butcher Joseph has been on the podcast once a quarter with ITR talking about GF data, like the multiples, and then the debt to equity ratios, uh, yep. interest rates, and all that stuff. What do you, is there something to be worried about in the PE industry about like people on when they're actually trying to sell their fund no, and get that IRR? I, I, I don't think, you know, so you, you had some, you know, we had a decrease in deal flow earlier in the year. And I, I tell people really what was going on was a game of chicken. You had, Sellers who had had inflated expectations, you had mm. buyers who didn't want to pay it because yeah. the interest you know rates were higher and the debt leverage ratios didn't work very well. But at some point, the cardinal sin of private equity is you got to put your your money to work. If you don't, if you don't put your LPs money to work, you cannot raise a new fund. And so deal flow started picking up in the second half. So all that happens is you know we 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 look at all PE funds 
based on their vintage year, which is the first year they make their investment and they survive for 10 years. And so ultimately funds of this time period probably will have moderated returns versus funds that had lower interest rates, Mm -hmm. but they'll be rated against other vintage funds that had the same economic cycle. Got it. So at the end of the day, you know, five, 10 years down the road, it, it, it won't matter. You know, I think as long as the asset class is beating the market, you'll continue to have an influx of capital. And it's been going that way. You know, jokingly, somebody said, you know, Mitt Romney used to talk about in the 1980s how PE was a bubble. Well, that bubble continues to, to keep on going, you know, 40 years <laughs> later. And it's like, you know, I, I just look at it as if we've got bad interest rates today, all funds investing today have that same economic, you know, in, you know, the, the, the same, yeah. the same C sea changes affecting all the, how was the bond market doing? You'd be like talking about one of the bond dealers or whatever, whatever yeah. bond brokers. It's like, it's, they're all dealing with the same thing they, they are. And so history will look back and they'll look at funds of vintages against other funds of the same vintage. Got it. Think of it like wine. 2013 was a great year for grapes and the humidity yeah, in the yeah. mountains and 2015, <laughs> the same vintner put out crap wine, you know, because it was a dry summer or whatever, you know, it's like, it, it, it will moderate nor it'll normalize, you know, and if you really think about interest rates anyway, we're, we're kind of at what I would, would call historically, we're still not at, at go back to, you know, what the it's interest rate vulgar, vulgar the era of the seventies <laughs> or 1980s when it was, you know, 15% mortgages, you know, it's like, and that was that. bad. That was when K, uh, when uh Blackstone and KKR got their, they got yeah. their uh, legs underneath yeah. them too. Man, this has been so much fun, Adam. I, I'm really happy that uh, we reconnected. I'm glad that you wrote another book and you're out there uh, giving everybody the material that I think will just enhance their conversations, play the right game, whether they're going to sell the PE or not. It, they, this, the same playbook's available to people, and I just absolutely love it. Um, is there anything that I, I didn't ask that I should have? Oh, no. We, we, long-ranging conversation. So next time, I'll, we'll do, I'm going to do it with an old-fashioned in my hand. We'll do it at night <laughs> in a bar bar. <laughs> and we'll like set it. up a, you know, or something. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, good. You know, fun, fun is always to see you, Ryan. You know, people can reach out to me on LinkedIn or go to adamcoffee.com. And, you got uh, all your books out there. You got all, yeah, all the stuff so out there. You, people can find me. I'm not hiding. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast, man. Hey, good to see you. And uh, thanks to all your listeners for hanging out while we rambled on. <laughs> well, that's a wrap. I really enjoyed the conversation with Adam and I hope you did too. I think that a couple of big takeaways are is that it is unbelievably important to understand how this whole other game is getting played in the private equity space, regardless of whether you plan on selling to private equity or getting into private equity. I think it's unbelievably important because private equity is an asset class like Adam was talking about and understanding that there is a huge amount of companies that are backed by private equity that are either your vendors, your competitors, potentially your customers. I mean, there's so many people backed by private equity that it's important to understand how the game is played, but also that you as a privately held business owner have the ability to create wealth and to scale your company in in a way that private equity does too, because it's an asset, as long as you're building sustainable cash flow, it doesn't mean you have to sell to private equity, but it's understanding how they operate because you can take a lot of strategies from them, like increase your normalized EBITDA, de-risk your EBITDA through increasing and increase the multiple and pay down debt. Those three levers can help you create wealth beyond your wildest dreams. And then if you wanted to get there faster, you can look at a private equity partner. But I think it's just important to understand also the 
as you're growing that asset and having that second principle that we talk about in the academy, what is your financial targets? What is the target equity valuation at a point in time that you want and your net proceeds? And what is the income you want on the way there? And then in parallel, what do you want your role to evolve to? And what is your experience that you want from a day-to-day, from the decisions you're uh, making, from the people that you're working with and the just your tasks and your freedom over your time every single day will be different underneath private equity or will be different in different ownership or partnership structures. And it's unbelievably important to think through this. So a couple of the takeaways are check out the Intentional Growth Academy. If you want to full on fully unpack private equity. We got whiteboarding and and a bunch of videos and animations and case studies in the academy. It's only a thousand bucks with the $500 coupon off in the show notes below. But also if you wanted to look at your numbers like private equity would look at them, uh, our complimentary financial assessment is a great way to do that where my, my partners and my team will uh, tie in our dashboard to your uh, your accounting system and your financials and then uh, analyze the numbers just like a PE firm would and then come back to you with their thoughts and observations. And the entire complimentary assessment, the purpose of it is to determine whether there's a good fit to work together or not. And in our dashboard plus coaching engagement, we will build out your financials and a dashboard, connect your income statement, your balance sheet and your cash flow statement to your target uh, normalized EBITDA and valuation. So you can see and measure monitor the value of your company and how operationally you got to get there. So you're always looking at the target and how your decisions every day are being impacted are, are impacting your long-term goal and your timeline. And then it can ha- allow you to have amazing conversations with other partners in your space. Maybe it's private equity, maybe it's a uh, investor, maybe it's just an internal buyer, but you're having these conversations with clear visibility into where you're at right now, where you want to go and also what you want. All you have to do is check out uh, the link below where we schedule a complimentary discovery call with myself to see if you qualify for the complimentary assessment. I appreciate everybody for tuning in to Adam's conversation. As you all probably know, I love all these topics, whether it's ESOPs, private equity, internal buyers, or family offices and advanced estate planning. It's all just ways to monetize your asset and keep going the direction that you want to go from the experience of life. They're just it, understanding these exit options is important regardless of whether you wanted to do it now or not. So I appreciate you tuning in. And if you're enjoying this podcast, share it with someone that you think would like this information. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I'll see you next week.